Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... It's, in a sense, a sort of crowdsourcing or collective intelligence. And, for instance, we're learning about people's very legitimate concerns and very legitimate constraints that we may not have known about. Stephanie Stancheva on what we believe, why we believe it, and how we sometimes change our minds. Hey, listeners, a quick message before we get started. This is the 50th episode of The New Bazaar, and it's also the season finale for season one. We thought, you know what? 50 is a good, strong number on which to end. But we are planning to launch season two later in the fall. And even before that, we have some surprise bonus episodes that are going to air in between the seasons and which we have planned for September and October. So make sure you stay subscribed in your podcast app. And if you want to hear a little more about our future and about the other stuff that we are working on, please stay tuned until the end of the episode and we'll tell you all about it. But for now, let's get on with today's show, which is a great one. Our guest is Stephanie Stancheva. Stephanie is an economist at Harvard, where she's also the head of the Social Economics Lab. This lab has produced some of the most fun and fascinating work that I've been following in the last few years. And what it does is it uses large online surveys, very carefully designed surveys, to better understand what the public thinks about a bunch of different economic policies and economic issues. And specifically, on the show today, Stephanie is going to share with us some of the lab's most recent work on what people think about four issues in particular. First, open trade between countries. Second, inequality and where people rank by income within their country or economic sector or within another reference group. Third, racial economic disparities. And fourth, climate change. Stephanie also tells us how people are divided on some of these issues, for example, by partisanship or by class, how they form their views, what they get right and wrong and why, and how occasionally some people even change their minds when presented with new information. It can happen. This was a really illuminating and fun conversation. And for me, at least, it also turned out to be quite a hopeful one. Here it is. Stephanie Stancheva, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thank you. Great to be here. Here's where I want to start. It seems like the work of the Social Economics Lab really cuts across a lot of different disciplines. So it's not just economics. There's psychology in there, sociology, political science. And in a lot of the papers that you end up producing, you do cite work from these other disciplines. So what do you see as the role of The Economist in particular in studying how people think and what they believe on all these different topics? Yeah, this is a great observation. We definitely draw inspiration from many other fields. And one reason for this is that we use a research tool, which is large-scale socioeconomic surveys and experiments, which is online surveys that we run on big samples of respondents in the U.S. and in other countries. And this method is actually inspired and draws upon work in psychology and political science and sociology, where we're really trying to improve and expand on this key tool to get into people's minds and understand how people reason and think. And really the economics angle here is the specific questions that we're asking and then the specific methods we use to analyze the data and shed light on the key patterns. One of the general lessons I've seen in a number of these papers as I've started rereading them before our interview was that people tend to be highly influenced by where their attention is directed, or maybe that's my interpretation. And I'll I'll give a couple of examples that might tease some of the work that we'll be discussing in more detail later. But for instance, when you asked people what they thought was the immigrant share of the population in the U.S., they estimated that it was something like 36% of people in the U.S. were immigrants, whereas the real level is closer to 14%. And similarly, people thought that China was the country that we exported the most stuff to, and that's not right 
either. It's actually Canada. But you can see how both of those topics, immigration and trade with China, have been so prominent in the news in the last few years that it might influence the way people think about those topics. And I'm just kind of curious to know if, if that is also a conclusion that you've drawn from all of these different issues you've studied. That's very true. Um, there are some topics which are very salient, very omnipresent in people's minds. And you can see that with this type of survey work. One of our challenges is to actually design the questions, design the survey in such a way that we do not prompt people to think in a particular way or the other. Our goal is to really try to accurately extract people's perceptions, knowledge and attitudes without biasing them one way or the other. The finding that you point to, namely that people, for instance, tend to really overestimate the share of immigrants could definitely be something that can be traced back to the media coverage or just the general political debate that goes around this issue. Yeah. And people also seem to be quite heavily influenced by their own direct experiences. And here, and and I'm really teasing one of the papers that we're going to get into on today's chat, but for example, how people experience the threat to their jobs from free trade ends up influencing what they think are the benefits or the negative consequences of trade for the entire country. So if you work, for example, in a sector that has a lot of foreign competition or that, you know, where your job might get outsourced, you tend to also think that trade is bad for the entire country, including the other economic sectors in the country and not just yours. And, and I'm wondering if it's also something that, that you've noticed in, in a lot of your work. Direct experience is definitely one of the factors that we always try to include in the analysis because obviously our own assessment of how a policy, for instance, will work or how it may affect others is in part driven by what we experience. So what we may call self-interest is definitely one of the elements we always try to include in the analysis. But it matters to different extents for different policies. When it comes to trade, when we think about the impact of trade on the country, on ourselves, our own experience seems to be very, very important in extrapolating from what we've lived to what we think will happen to others. On other things like tax policy, for instance, Self-interest seems to be actually not a major driving force. Um, Hmm. There's much more important considerations that people have, and in particular, partisanship seems to play a much larger role there. So self-interest is definitely one important component to study. It is by no means the only thing driving people's views on policies, and it matters to different degrees for different types of policies. You mentioned the point of self-interest and how it applies differently across different topics In a couple of the papers that we're going to be discussing today, one of the conclusions seems to be that convincing people to sacrifice something is really hard. And so, for example, on something like climate change, people do want to know what the effect of a specific climate policy is going to be on their own standard of living. And similarly, when it comes to supporting or not supporting policies that reduce racial wealth gaps, that seems to be a salient issue as well. And so this question of whether or not somebody would be willing to sacrifice something also seems to be a topic that comes up a lot as well, right? Yes, that definitely comes up a lot. And again, there's different degrees of that willingness across people, but also across issues. Um, So I think once we dive into the specific uh, issues and policies, we can, we can talk about this in much more detail. Well, let's do exactly that. <laughs> let's start with your paper, Understanding of Trade. And it's hard to know where to begin here because there's so many different subtleties in this paper. But why don't we do this? Let's talk about how specific personal experiences do play a role in the way that people regard trade and its consequences on the rest of the country. Great. I think it's helpful to think about a bit of a framework uh, for this. So when we as people, you know, as citizens think about trade policy, our self-interest, you know, our own experience comes into play in two different domains. One is that we are consumers. So we tend to buy products, some of which are imported from abroad and the price of which the variety of which is affected by trade policy. So we have a certain impact on us as consumers. Specifically, Stephanie, we should spell this out, though. When we open ourselves up to more imports from abroad, we get 
a wider variety of goods that we can buy. And it can also have the effect of lowering the prices of the goods that we end up buying, not just because those goods themselves from abroad might be cheaper, but because those goods end up being competitive with the goods that are made inside the country. So it has this effect of giving us a wider variety of goods and a wider variety of cheaper goods. Is that is that roughly correct uh, in line with what economists think? That's roughly correct. So there's subtleties in terms of which prices of which goods may decrease more than others, especially mm -hmm. in what we call relative terms, which means relative to our purchasing power overall, for instance. But roughly speaking, yes, as we open up more to trade and as competition and the number of markets that trade with each other increases, the price of goods that we end up importing should normally decrease. Uh, right. So as consumers, we should be made generally better off if we consume a broad basket of goods because we have more variety to choose from and we typically will face some lower prices. Now, the second way in which we're affected by trade personally is as workers, as employees in the labor market. And here, people will be affected very differently based on their occupation, their sector of work, and their local labor market. And typically, the economic predictions in our economic models are that if you are in a sector that is competing against importing sectors, so you're a sector that is threatened by competition, you'll be made worse off. On the other hand, if you are in a profession that tends to be highly educated, high skilled, specifically in the US, you will tend to be made better off by trade with other countries. And so we have these predictions about how different people, if we believe the economic models, should be assessing their own gains and losses from trade as employees in the labor market. And what are the conclusions in terms of you know where people are and and what their views are on the positive or negative consequences of trade? So here is where it gets really interesting because this what we can call the self-interest either as consumers or as employees can shape our views directly because we think we gain or we lose but actually also indirectly because we may start extrapolating from our own experience to what we think may happen more broadly to the US, to other workers, to other people. And in my work, I can see both of these effects happening. So first of all, people who think that they themselves are more likely to lose in the labor market, who think their sector is more threatened, who tend to work in occupations or industries that truly are more threatened, or in, in local markets where there's more import penetration and there is seriously more of a threat from trade, those people tend to perceive more negative benefits to themselves, more losses, and tend to be less supportive of open trade and more supportive of trade restrictions. But in addition to that, this shapes their whole beliefs about how much the US as a whole stands to gain from trade, how much trade tends to improve the competitiveness, the productivity, the innovation in the US. And they have more negative views about all those effects as well. So in a sense, our own experience, you know, we extrapolate from it and we tend to change our beliefs about what will happen overall on others, on the US economy as a whole. Another thing that is very interesting is that our gains as consumers are actually much less important, apparently. What I find is that when you make people think about the products that they can buy, things to trade, the price reductions that they may get, the variety of goods that they may have, things to trade, that doesn't have that much of an effect. And this is very consistent with this idea that consumer gains are very widespread, so everyone benefits by a little, but that these gains are also not very clear because it's hard to know where prices would have been absent trade or exactly which goods we may or may not have been able to buy. So those are what we may call very diffuse gains. On the other hand, the losses to those who are affected in their jobs, they're very sharp, they're very big, and they affect you know a smaller group of people, but in a very, very acute way. And so those losses through the labor market are extremely salient to people. That makes sense. And there's also what I consider to be a somewhat optimistic finding in this paper, which is that if people are aware of the possibility that there are policy tools available to compensate the people who lose from free trade, in other words, those workers who might face more competition, who might lose their jobs or who might suffer from stagnant wages, 
if it's clear to people that those compensatory tools are available, those policy ideas, then they are more likely to favor free trade. And I'd love to hear more about this, about the views on not just trade itself, but on the policies that shape the way trade actually functions in the U.S. or elsewhere. That's right. So one thing that I'm very much emphasizing in this work is that trade policy has multiple aspects. One is direct trade restrictions or, you know, open trade. But another is what we may call compensatory redistribution, which is policies to compensate those who are hurt by trade. There will always be winners and losers, and there's ways through either transfers that are targeted or retraining programs to actually compensate potentially people who suffer or are being displaced by trade. And so we have to think of these two aspects together jointly. And what I can see is that people's views on trade are very much driven by broader economic and social concerns beyond their own material self-interest as well. And in particular, when people believe that there are more efficiency gains from trade, which means there will be more competition, more innovation, more growth because of trade, they're much more supportive of open trade. On the other hand, if they believe that there will be adverse distributional consequences, so for instance, lower income households, smaller businesses will tend to lose higher income households will tend to gain or big companies will tend to gain. This actually does not really reduce their support for open trade if they believe that those losers, that those people who lose can be compensated with appropriate policies. So in a sense, as long as we think that there are policies, there's actions we can take to dampen the distributional consequences, then it's okay, even if we know that there's adverse distributional consequences, we will still be inclined to support open trade for all the other gains that it brings. But it's really critical that people think and know and that there are actually these redistribution policies put in place. It suggests that having you know, open trade without any compensatory redistribution, without any buffering of the losses for people who suffer you know, is, a, is a disastrous policy because it will entail adverse distributional consequences and ultimately in a justifiable way will generate a backlash against, against open trade. Yeah. You also found that there is a partisan gap in how people regard trade restrictions specifically. And this is fascinating. You found that people who responded to your surveys who are Democrats were more likely to say that if you impose trade restrictions, it would be bad for the prices of the goods in the U.S. and it would be bad for the overall economic efficiency of the U.S. economy. And those who were Republicans were more likely to say well, actually, trade restrictions might help shift jobs back into the U.S. and they would support the idea, and this is a direct quote from your paper, of made in the USA. And I'd love to hear more about this partisan gap because this is the dimension along which a lot of people talk about trade, support for trade, or criticisms of trade. Yes, the partisan gap is actually something that comes up in a lot of, a lot of the work and is something that we focus on a lot. What's interesting for trade is that the partisanship, you know, is actually not that important relative if we benchmark it to other policies, for instance, mm. tax policy. So there's definitely some differences, but actually, you know, most respondents remain supportive of free trade overall, whether on the Democratic or on the Republican side. And there's some common thinking on policies, for instance, to ensure food security or to help industries that are still developing, etc. So this lack of a large partisan gap actually stands in contrast with many other policies like immigration, tax policy, etc. And it's also actually in line historically with the fact that U.S. presidents from sort of either party have introduced trade restrictions or abolished some. There hasn't been a very consistent pattern that's been, you know, very clear by partisan lines. But there's definitely a partisan gap when it comes to support for these compensatory or redistribution policies, which mirrors what we see on tax policy more generally. There's definitely more of an aversion on the on the right, on the Republican side, to give compensatory transfers to help, you know, to redistribute, uh, which is, yes, in line with general support of redistribution. Hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting about this, too, is that if you had asked me, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago, which party was the party that tended to favor free trade, I might have said the Republicans and that the Democrats were more likely to talk about the distributional effects of trade. 
And then something happened in the last roughly five to 10 years. There was the emergence of you know, a populist movement, not just in the U.S., but across Western Europe and other parts of the world. And in particular, you know, President Donald Trump was quite skeptical of trade and imposed as part of his policy agenda a lot of restrictions. And what we saw in the in the polling or in the surveys by places like, I think, Gallup or Pew was that a lot of voters tended to follow whatever the sort of party line was. And so it seemed like identity played a very big role so that you saw this shift from Republicans being quite quite in favor of trade to all of a sudden the emergence of populism or President Donald Trump, and then it collapses and the exact opposite movement for Democrats. And so it seems like there's also the potential for views on trade to fluctuate over time by partisan alliance. And, and I'm kind of curious to know how that sort of idea might overlap or intersect with your own work. Yeah, so there's policies where uh, it seems like partisan lines have remained in place for a very, very long time and have become uh, very entrenched. So I keep giving the example of tax policy, which is a very strong example of very clear partisan lines, and not only in the US, also in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but trade has definitely been an issue that has fluctuated over time. And to your point, different administrations have taken different stances on it, again, in the US and abroad. And so it is an area where there are some partisan gaps today, but they're by no means as large as for other policies. Yeah. One of the things that you also study across a number of papers is the way that people can be polarized about facts themselves. So not just their preferred policy views or their preferred direction for the country, but about actual, you know, verifiable facts. And here we can get into what people think are the countries that we most import or export to. And basically the answer that comes up the most is China in both cases. And it happens to be correct in the case of the country that we import the most stuff from, that is China. And in fact, most people got that right. But everybody also thinks that we export the most to China. And that's just totally wrong. Uh, But people tend to get things wrong based on, I don't know, where their attention is being directed or partisan affiliation or or other things. Yeah, so there is a phenomenon which we call the polarization of reality, which is exactly what you're alluding to, namely that Some facts, you know, things that are verifiable that you can go and look up on Google in principle, we will hold different views about them based on our political leaning. So to come back to the example, you know, of tax policy, people, for instance, will have a different perception of what is the top tax rate today, which is a number you can easily go and check depending on whether they're Democratic leaning or Republican leaning. And it will always be in a consistent direction. For instance, Democratic respondents will tend to think the top tax rate is lower than Republican respondents think. Same goes for other numbers that you can check. For instance, inequality is measured by the share of income going to the top 1% or 10%, how inequality has changed over time, how progressive the current tax system is, etc. To some extent, many things are, you know, difficult to understand and we can't keep track of everything. So I'm neither surprised nor discouraged by any any lack of knowledge on a given topic. You know, I don't know so many things and I would probably be wrong about many questions outside of my area of expertise. Uh, What I do find much more interesting is this fact that our political leaning shapes our view on basic facts. So this polarization of reality is the thing I find very interesting rather than the misperception per se which we all have and probably on many, many areas in many areas. Yeah. And imagine how I feel. I don't even have an area of expertise. So I'm just (laughs) wrong about everything all the time. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's now talk about a paper titled Social Position and Fairness Views. Uh, Why don't you introduce the paper? What were you looking at here and how did you go about studying it? Great. So, There's a perennial question almost in social sciences and also in the public debate, which is how does our view on where we rank relative to others shape our, you know, voting on policies and what we want to do? It's this idea of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses in a way, Uh, Mm -hmm. the idea that our relative standing, where we think we are relative to others, really matters to us. So it doesn't only matter to us how much do we 
earn overall uh, or how much do we get to consume. It also matters how we are compared to others. And so what we set out to do here is to study in detail how do people actually rank themselves relative to others and in several reference groups. So a reference group may be your immediate neighbors, you know, people who live in your street around you. It could be your coworkers at your workplace. Um, it could be people with the same education level as you uh, and of the same age. It could be people in your city, etc. So there's all these reference groups that you may have in mind uh, where you implicitly or explicitly, you know, form a view about where you stand relative to other people in that group. Mm-hmm. And it's actually very difficult to check whether people's perceptions on this are accurate or not, because it requires, well, first of all, asking them about their ranking relative to others. What, when you and say then, their ranking, you mean their income relative to other people's incomes, right? That's right. That's right. So where where my income lands relative to everyone else in a given group. Okay. Exactly. You also need to know what everyone else is making in that group, which is you know a, a huge data requirement here. So what we did was to match our own survey that we designed to administrative tax data where we can actually see uh, for all your neighbors, for all your coworkers, for everyone in all these other reference groups, what's their income, and so what's your own income relative to them. And we can then assess how accurate are people and how does that then matter for the extent to which they think inequality is fair or unfair. And it turns out that when it comes to people's perceptions of their own rankings, where they are on the income distribution, they tend to be pretty accurate. I was a little bit surprised by this, I got to say. So people tend to be relatively accurate, but it depends on which group particularly we're talking about. And Mm -hmm. there's a systematic bias that we have. So something that comes up consistently is that people who are ranked towards the lower part of the income in any given group tend to overestimate their position. So they tend to overestimate where they rank relative to others. And on the contrary, people who are ranked higher tend to underestimate their position. And we can actually pinpoint where this comes from. It comes from, if you yourself are poor, you're going to think everyone else is poor too. And so you're going to sort of overestimate how well you're doing relative to others and vice versa. If you're richer, you're going to overestimate how rich everyone else is. And so you're going to tend to underplace yourself because you just think everyone else is richer too. So, our so we own, all want to believe we're middle class then in a sense, is it sounds like what you're saying. It's broader than that because uh-huh. um, it is not only true for, let's say, ranking yourself in the country overall, which would be exactly this belief that we're all middle class. But it's also true if I ask you to rank yourself within your sector of work or at your Mm. workplace, uh, which is much broader than that. We tend to think of ourselves as closer to the center of the group, uh, whether that group is very high income or very low income. And it's because we tend to extrapolate from our own income to what we think others are making. So our own income shapes our views of, well, how much, you know, how much more could others be making or how much less? And What we can also see is that people are actually particularly wrong in their position when it comes to ranking themselves among their coworkers in Mm. their firm and among others who work in the same sector. So pretty strikingly, we're actually more accurate in ranking ourselves among our former schoolmates we went to school with or among our neighbors in our street or among people in our city than we are ranking ourselves in our firm or in our sector of work. So this poses a a, a bit of a puzzle, which is why is information not circulating very well in the labor market. It's exactly there where people tend to, you know, not realize how highly paid others are relative to them. And it's particularly there where people who earn little tend to overestimate where they rank. Yeah, and it's easy to see how this could be problematic in a way, because if you are lower income and you don't realize that you're lower income, you might be less likely to ask for a raise or ask for a bonus because you won't see that others are getting paid a lot more than you are. Also, because if you are higher income within your profession or or in general, you may not think it's a big deal to agitate for others to get paid more highly because you already assume that they are getting paid closer to where you are. And so it seems like both of these trends would sort of perpetuate the existing income inequality because 
in each case, there's less of a motivation to do anything about it. There are definitely some real consequences from this misperception. So the one that you're alluding to, which is in the labor market particularly, if you do not realize how highly paid others are, you may not seek out opportunities for yourself, whether it is looking for another job that's better paid or asking for a raise or advocating for others. Absolutely. So there's these real consequences this may have. And in addition, if we if we go one step further, one of the core findings we have is that your view of where you rank relative to others is actually very critical in shaping your view on how fair or unfair inequality is within each of these groups. So mm. the higher ranked you are in a given group, the higher you think you are, the more you think inequality, so income differences in that group, are fair. So you're more willing to tolerate them and you're less willing to do things about that inequality. So if, for instance, I'm ranked higher in my sector of work, I will be much more likely to say, yes, people earn different things in the same sector of work and that's fair. And the opposite if I'm actually, if I think I'm ranked lower. And that's true if I ask you about your city, your gender group, your cohort, all of these groups. So clearly our view of where we stand relative to others is quite crucial in shaping our views on how fair inequality is. And so this can then have consequences for our policy behavior because if we do not actually realize how low ranked we are, in fact, if we tend to overestimate our own position, all else equal, we will tend to think that inequality is actually more fair and be less willing to take policy action or support policies that reduce inequality. Yeah, this is so fascinating as well, because if you are, for example, underpaid, you don't realize it. And then when somebody tells you, as you did in this study, when somebody actually tells you that you're underpaid, it's understandable also why you'd think that the existing inequality is unfair, because if, for example, I'm comparing myself to other people who have a similar education or who are in my same, I don't know, economic sector, and I realize that there's a lot of inequality and I'm one of the people who's underpaid, I might think then that the reason for the existing inequality, and I could be right about this, is that there's some other arbitrary distinction that's causing it, whether that's some kind of discrimination by race or gender, ethnicity, or something else, I'm less likely to think that it's fair because I have the same qualifications as the others. And so this is just kind of mind-blowing. And I'd love to hear, if anything, even a little bit more about this and the, the rationale for why it is you think that people would then start to see this inequality as less fair. Yes, that's a great question. So we do ask people more in depth about their views of what shapes income differences, what shapes inequality. And to your point, what we see is that if you are ranked higher in any given group, you'll be more likely to say that income differences are due to your own merit, to, are due to merit differences, effort differences, rather mm -hmm. than what you may call luck, which is circumstances outside of your control like having more advantages or disadvantages. So clearly the, the process that we imagine behind uh, income differences is different based on our own perceived position. So if we're ranked higher, we'll tend to think, oh, it's, it's effort, it's merit, much more so than luck or other circumstances. Um, and this also speaks to the fact that people tend to view different inequalities to be more unfair than others. So for instance, people tend to say that Okay, if people have different incomes in a city or people of the same age have different incomes or people of the same gender have different incomes, it's more fair than if people in the same sector have different incomes or with the same education. And that speaks to the fact that once you have the same education, people have more trouble imagining, well, what else can be causing these income differences that is fair? It seems much more due to other circumstances rather than, you know, people in a, in a city have different lifestyles, have different choices of jobs, etc. So people tend to view inequalities conditional on your type of work, your sector of work, your education level, as much more unfair than, than broader inequalities. Fascinating. Let's turn now to a paper called Perceptions of Racial Gaps, Their Causes and Ways to Reduce Them. This also is a fascinating paper, and I'd love to start here. Views on the reasons for existing racial gaps are entrenched extremely early in life. Take us through that finding. 
Yeah, so let me let me introduce a little bit the goal of this paper, you know, what sure. we're actually trying to achieve here. If you look around, there are a lot of racial gaps on a on a range of economic and social indicators. And it's a big question why there is so little agreement on the sources of the problems and what should be done about them. So you may wonder, is it that people are just unaware of these racial gaps in opportunities or in outcomes, for instance, between black and white Americans? Or do people see the same reality but explain it differently? Or is it that people, you know, agree that some policy action is needed but disagree on how exactly to do it? You know, whether they want some race-targeted interventions versus a broad redistribution policy. And so these are the questions we wanted to address here. So we surveyed large samples of black and white Americans, and we surveyed both adults, but also teenagers that are aged 13 to 17. And we dig in in detail into what are their perceptions about racial gaps along many dimensions? What do they know? And then what do they think is the cause? Do they think it is mainly you know, historical, systemic issues, discrimination, racism, history, or do they think it is individual actions, individual choices? So we try to get at the roots of the problem, according to them. And then we also ask them, what, what do they want to do about it? Do they support race-targeted policies? Do they support general redistribution policy? Yeah, and- can, can you, I'm sorry, Stephanie, can you just explain the differences between those two things, between race-targeted policies versus general redistribution policies for listeners who might not be aware of the landscape of policy issues here? Of course. So when we say broad redistribution policies, we mean policies that condition on income. So for instance, transfers to low-income households, policies like minimum wage for low-income workers, the earned income tax credit. So policies that are just you know, based on your means, based on your income, without any specific regard to race. On the other hand, race-targeted policies are policies where we explicitly target a particular racial group. So for instance, policies like preferential hiring or preferential college admissions for some groups, policy like reparations that is being discussed. Those are policies that are specifically targeted towards some racial groups. Explicitly aimed at shrinking racial gaps in income or wealth or other measures. That's right. While general redistribution that is income targeted will indirectly affect racial gaps, presumably, because many um, non-white groups have lower incomes. And so they will be affected by redistribution policy more. So in a sense, general redistribution could be perceived as an indirect way and, you know, unclear how effective, but an indirect way to try and reduce racial gaps. Right. Just wanted to make sure that we had explained that uh, for course. our listeners. But but please continue in terms of the, the study of the survey and, and what you were trying to find. So what we see is that there's definitely differences across people in how they perceive the current economic conditions and opportunities of black and white Americans. So there are differences in terms of by race and bipartisanship, where, you know, people will disagree on to what extent are there actually racial gaps, etc. But the biggest disagreement by far is actually in the perceived causes of these racial inequalities. And because of that, in what should be done about them. So mm-hmm. in a sense, people agree that there's some racial gaps, although they perceive slightly different magnitudes for them. But they tend to think very different things drive those. And along many dimensions, actually, white democratic respondents tend to be much more aligned with black democratic respondents than with white Republicans. So if I were to summarize very, very starkly, black and white democratic respondents are much more likely to attribute racial gaps to slavery, longstanding discrimination and racism, basically systemic causes, and to want to reduce them through both income-targeted redistribution and race-targeted policies. While white Republican respondents will tend to view racial inequities primarily as uh, the result of individual decisions, you know, for instance, lack of effort, and to support less intervention to reduce them. So there's very stark partisan gaps in the perceived causes of these of these racial inequities. And yeah. these racial and especially the partisan gaps are already very prevalent among teenagers. So when we asked, you know, teenagers about their views, we can see that they're in line with their parents' political affiliation. So for instance, teenagers in Republican families 
will be much more likely to attribute, again, racial gaps to individual actions, individual decisions. Teenagers in democratic families will tend to attribute them to systemic causes, to slavery, discrimination, and racism. So these views seem to be already very prevalent quite early in life. You also write something interesting in the conclusion of this paper. You point out that obviously there is a lot of people who directly experience some of the causes of racial gaps, the discrimination, the racism, and the historical legacies of those things. And obviously that's going to end up informing their views. But that for the people who do not experience them directly, the prevailing narratives are going to end up playing a big role in shaping their views. And here I could see a role being played by the media or, I don't know, by history textbooks or maybe how things are presented on TV or in other places. Can you just say a little more about that, the role of societal narratives in shaping views? Yes, absolutely. So what we see here is really it's the it's the story about the, the why, why these gaps exist that is the most actually important predictor of whether people want to do something against racial gaps or not. And this why is shaped by presumably many factors, your own exposure. We see, for instance, that where people live and the extent to which they're actually exposed in their own experience to racial gaps does shape. It could be, you know, the media, it could be sources of news, etc. The key is that simply telling people there are these large racial gaps along all these dimensions, etc., does not actually move their policy views because telling them how things are doesn't shift their views on why they are like that. And ultimately, mm. what matters for them to support a policy or not to reduce racial gap is the why they have in mind, the narrative about how things are the way they are, the causes of these racial gaps. And so what we can see is that actually explaining in an experimental way, so showing people actually a video that gets a bit at the at the long-standing, deep-rooted causes of systemic racism is actually somewhat effective at changing their perceived causes of the racial gaps and improving their support for a range of policies to reduce them. Um, uh, that's so, very interesting. That's very hopeful, I got to say. I guess the, the challenge is to actually get people to sit and watch the video or to sit and receive the information somehow. But you're saying that if they do receive the information, they might be willing to alter their views. That's right. And obviously, these views about the causes, the why, they're also the hardest to shift. They're, they're the most entrenched ones. So it is, you know, people can be convinced that, for instance, there are big gaps in incomes, in social mobility between black and white people in the U.S., and still, that's not going to move their views on policy because it doesn't move their views of why they think this happens. So moving the why is very difficult, but it's possible. We do see that there is, you know, some respondents uh, with particularly entrenched views that are not sensitive to that information, nevertheless, because they tend to assume it's actually biased information. So when you try mm. to explain these systemic racism causes, some respondents will perceive this as being in their own words, left-wing biased and not actually not actually true. So it's definitely the case that these views on the why are very are hard to shift. One other finding in this paper is that the attitudes on race from the whole population might be different from the attitudes on race from the people most likely to vote, which is really worrying and a little bit sad, I think, if, if you care about you know, democracy and democratic representation. So what did what did you find in that section of the paper? Yes, that's actually a broader point and highlights a little bit the value of these large scale surveys as well. These surveys can actually help us reach populations which are not necessarily the ones showing up to vote. So they're by no means perfect. It is difficult to reach some people and not everyone uh, is willing to take surveys. But still, we can get some coverage of the population and elicit people's views in a way that may not be seen in the polls. And so here, for instance, we can see that it's possible that voter attitudes on race may actually be quite different from those of the overall, both voting and non-voting population. One thing we find, for instance, is that younger respondents and black respondents are much more supportive of race-targeted policies. Yet, as we know, these groups are also less likely to vote, in part because of costly and you know, unjustified restrictions that, that are put in place as substantial barriers to voting. So this is, these surveys can help us actually see 
what the views are of some groups that are otherwise, you know, not not the ones necessarily expressing their political views in the polls. The final paper I'd love to discuss with you is titled Fighting Climate Change, International Attitudes Towards Climate Policies. And this is fascinating as well for a number of reasons, uh, but there are some nuances tucked away in your findings. And so I guess one place to start here is with the idea that actually, and I'm quoting from the paper itself, an overwhelming majority of people understand that climate change is real and that it is human-caused. And so I think people get the sense that this is another topic on which people are super polarized, but here, actually, for this one specific point about climate change, that doesn't seem to be the case. So climate change is another hugely important topic, and I thought that it would be incredibly important to actually dig deeper into what people think and know about it. And this paper is the result of a large-scale surveys in 20 countries, so the U.S. is one of the countries, but it spans actually a whole range of different you know, social economic systems here. And we were really willing to understand what drives people's support or opposition to important climate policies that are currently on the table or are possible in the future. How much do people actually know about climate change? And can information actually help change people's perceptions? And as you say, Citizens across all these countries are actually very concerned about climate change and are supportive of taking action. So there is there is some variation within countries and across countries, but there's actually only a minority of people who are not concerned about climate change and who don't think that action should be taken. So this is a strong and prevalent concern, which then leads to the question, why is it so hard to, you know, to comply with yeah, a very... people do something about it. <laughs> exactly. Or governments particularly have had a very, you know, tough time implementing policies. So that's a bit the puzzle that we're trying to shed light on here, what actually matters for increased support. And we're using yeah. this tool of surveys to really understand people's views on public policies. So we're going to ask people in detail about their own background, things like their energy usage, you know, how much they rely on a car, where they live, etc. We're going to ask them about their knowledge and views on climate policies, on climate change itself. And then we're going to show them some pedagogical videos on the impacts of climate change and how policies work. And what we can yeah. see is that it's three key concerns that determine support for a given climate policy or the lack of support. So the first is exactly what we already spoke about, which is is it going to hurt me and my household? So this is what we can call self-interest. So that's very important, but it's by no means the only concern because people are also very concerned in, is this policy actually effective in reducing emissions? And this is not that easy to guess oftentimes because you know, climate is a complicated system. It is not easy to imagine what will this particular, say, ban on combustion engine cars or this particular environmental tax exactly do in terms of reducing temperatures, reducing emissions. So the effectiveness concern is another very important concern. And the third is what we call an inequality concern, which is, is it going to hurt the poor and lower income too much or more than others? So people have a strong equity or inequality concern here too. So those three mm. things taken together are basically the major predictors of support for climate policies. Which means, yeah, let me summarize those mm -hmm. again real quick for everybody. So if people are convinced that a policy is effective, they'll be more likely to support it. If they're convinced that a policy will not disproportionately harm lower income people, poor people, then they'll also be more likely to support it. And then finally, they do take into account how it's going to affect their own budgets, their own balance sheets, then they're also more likely to support it. Is that, is that about right? That's exactly right. And it's interesting for both what is included here and what is omitted. So first of all, it says that you know, self-interest is by far not the only reason why people support policies. So they have broader mm -hmm. concerns about their effectiveness and their impact on others, especially on the poor. And it also means that concerns about climate change are not major predictors either, because basically many people are already very worried. And we see that as well in the experimental part, which is just telling people about the potentially disastrous consequences of climate change has no impact because 
people are already quite, quite worried. And similarly, even though people have very different knowledge about concretely, if you want the technicalities of climate change, exactly what will happen, exactly which activities are polluting, which others not, knowledge is barely correlated with their support for policies as well. So this very much says that if you're going to try to provide information, the information has to be very specifically about how policies work, how effective are they, how progressive are they, basically, will they hurt low incomes more than high incomes, etc. Those are the key pieces of information to provide. So information and explanations work, but only if they address those main concerns that people have. One of the points that I took away from the paper as well is that if you're going to alleviate people's concerns of their own potential losses from new climate change policies, then it helps to sort of emphasize alternative ways of doing things that can be pleasant. In other words, things that are both friendly to the environment, to the climate, but also pleasant for them. And so here you can talk about public transportation in the places where that might make sense. You can talk about, I don't know, using other kinds of renewable energy sources and making it easier to use them, as opposed to, for example, just talking about raising some kind of tax or limiting the amount of energy that can be produced in the fossil fuel industry, which can work and it can help. But because people will experience that as higher inflation effectively, it might be less popular and less successful in persuading people to do more about the climate. Is that approximately correct in terms of the interpretation of these findings? Yeah, so let me let me give a bit more detail here. Um, given that there's these three key concerns, you can almost immediately map it into support for given policy designs, which are perceived at the same time to be more effective and also more progressive. So some of the popular policy designs are targeted investment programs, for instance, in green infrastructure or low carbon technologies that are financed progressively. So for instance, with progressive taxes. Higher taxes on rich people, but not higher taxes on the folks who can perhaps least afford it. That's right, exactly. So that the burden is shared in an equitable way, according to people. The Mm -hmm. second type of policies is actually carbon taxes, but again, only if the revenues are used in a strongly progressive way, which means the revenues are used to give cash transfers to the poorest or the vulnerable households, those households who are very reliant on polluting energy, for instance, in rural or remote areas, or if the revenues are earmarked for green investments, so they're allocated to the environment, they're not used for other purposes. And Uh in some cases, actually, people prefer regulation rather than environmental taxation. So for instance, bans on polluting vehicles from city centers or dense areas are more popular than putting a tax on polluting vehicles, which actually shows this equity or inequality concern again. It seems like people dislike it when some can just pay to pollute, so to speak, and view it as perhaps more equitable sometimes to actually outright ban something so that it sort of affects everyone equally. And yeah. It is true that there's differences across people that are very much related to their own, you know, lifestyle and reliance on energy. So we do see very strongly that people who oppose climate policies tend to be in areas with lower availability of public transportation, are more reliant on cars, have higher gas expenses. So those people have, you know, more negative beliefs about the impacts of climate policies, not just on themselves, but on others. And they also think climate policies are less effective. But those are not very, very strong predictors. So it's it's difficult to infer people's policy views from just their age, gender, income, where they live, how much they rely on polluting sources of energy. Or their lifestyle, it sounds like. Exactly. Right? If that's not a strong predictor. And, and the fact that you might get people in, I don't know, a city or a state that's very car dependent, and even that's not a super reliable predictor. Exactly. That's, that's quite interesting. I, yes. I had not expected that. I so there's say. other beliefs that go into this, basically, uh, that we outlined. And, you know, one thing that is, I think, extremely important to distinguish is this difference between your own behavior, your willingness to change your own behavior, and the willingness to support public policies. These are two very different issues. You know, my willingness to change my own behavior depends on, in a sense, the current policies in place, how much money I have to do it, how much this is taxed or subsidized. So it's a very different issue. And, you know, what we can see is like people are have a relatively limited willingness to make far-reaching changes today 
to adopt more climate-friendly behaviors given today's policies. Um, and if we ask them what would help them make them more willing to change behaviors, they say two things. One is, first of all, many, especially poor respondents say, well, it's a financial problem. I need help basically to be able to adopt more climate-friendly behaviors because it is costly currently. And another thing that everybody across, you know, many, many respondents say is that they're more willing to change their behavior if others also do so, especially if, you know, high-income people also change their behaviors. Uh, but again, your willingness to change your own behavior is a very different issue from being willing to support public policy to act against climate change. I got to say, again, I find a source of optimism in this paper, which is that if you can manage to get people to sit down and absorb some of the other available information about these topics, they do prove willing to adjust their worldview based on that new information. So it seems like what's hard is to find ways to get factual, important information in front of people and then to get them to trust it, to trust that it's being offered in good faith. And of course, it has to be offered in good faith. I mean, it has to be genuine and not a threat to their identity. And that might be harder. I don't know. But even so, the willingness of people to change their minds, they're being open to changing their minds, at least sometimes. That seems like a good thing. What do you think? So let me let me offer you a slightly different perspective here, which is that I view these surveys as very much a two-way learning. So to some extent, we provide some information to people in these in these surveys and these experiments, for instance, on how policies work. But we are also learning a lot from people. It's, mm. it's in a sense, a sort of crowdsourcing or collective intelligence. And for instance, we're learning about people's very legitimate concerns and very legitimate constraints that we may not have known about. So one thing we're learning here is, well, people are constrained by you know their own economic situation to make changes, or people care very legitimately about the equity of this, about how it's going to impact lower income people relative to higher income people. And so I am learning a lot. We researchers are learning a lot, and I think policymakers should be learning a lot. So it's by no means just a matter of trying to convey people information. We are also getting so much information here and learning so much about, yes, again, legitimate concerns and legitimate constraints that citizens have. So I think here one big one big conclusion is that policies not only have to be effective, that's, you know, a bit the the whole area of climate scientists and and economists to, you know, think about policies that are effective in reducing emissions and economically rational. But it's a huge task to make the policies progressive and they have to be progressive. And then people have to also understand that they're progressive. So to me, that's like a major policy target that has to be reached to have policies that are actually perceived as equitable because they are, because they are actually progressive. And another big thing that comes out, finding something that we learn by listening to people here is that having alternatives to, to polluting modes of transportation or polluting equipment is really key. If people have no way to substitute away from these polluting modes, then imposing a tax is, you know, it's a punitive tax because people cannot switch away from that mode of transportation or, or polluting equipment. And so making alternatives, low carbon alternatives available is a key role for public policy as well. Uh, that is a lovely and humble approach to social science. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious decision that you made perhaps before setting up the social economics lab in that you were approaching this from the standpoint of we're studying what people think and why and we're open to learning something and making this a two-way venture rather than we want to know why people are so dumb about climate change and other stuff. And this is our chance to figure out why and, and to change their minds, which is, I think, a more problematic approach. I agree. And I'm, I'm learning a lot all the time. So it's really it's really been an incredible an incredible journey here. Yeah. A couple of closing questions. What are your thoughts on the role of communications technology and technology generally in your work? And I could, I could see how this could apply in a couple of different ways. One is in the shaping of public views and the ways that people get information and how 
it changes their minds or perhaps further entrenches their beliefs. But another is that it helps you to actually be able to study these trends, the ability to conduct these large-scale surveys. And so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on those things. I think, yes, technology here has been, you know, an incredible opportunity to actually reach people in a way that wasn't that wasn't that possible even just, you know, 10 years ago. 15 years ago. Exactly. 10 years ago, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, currently, you know, we're able to do these large-scale surveys through mobile phones in a way that's intuitive, interactive, that has a relatively low cost for people. And so this has been an incredible opportunity to really reach broader groups. And, and I'm incredibly, you know, incredibly excited and grateful and grateful for that. Now, there are still many groups we cannot reach. And so that is particularly a concern that I'm thinking about a lot. And this is where sometimes what we call mixed media surveys come in. There's populations which don't have that easy internet access, whether it's within rich countries like the US or actually in developing countries. And so there you have to complement, in a sense, online surveys with in-person surveys or phone surveys to try and actually reach broader populations. But overall, it's been an incredible opportunity to have this uh, technology to reach people really and be able to listen to them. Last question. What has surprised you most? Perhaps what lesson have you learned that has most surprised you since you started this line of work? It's going to be too hard to pick one. I'm I'm surprised <laughs> all the time because um, I'm going into this with a intentionally very open mind and eager to eager to really learn what's in people's minds, what's their thought process, what's their thinking, and so I learn things all the time. Some things are more surprising than others. But in general, I try to just be open to all of it. And so it's a constant, constant challenging and interesting route here. What about the receptiveness of people to filling out these surveys, which is a non-trivial commitment? And you're doing it for a lot of people and from people of all ideological and partisan backgrounds. Has anything about that surprised you? Yeah, so this is definitely one of our one of our challenges and one of the things we're constantly seeking to improve, which is to be aware of who's taking the surveys and more importantly, who is not, who is being left out to know whether our results are actually representative of, say, the views of the U.S. population or the views of another country. So there's a lot of work that goes into checking who the respondents are, how they align according to many observable characteristics uh, to the broad population. Um, so this is definitely an ongoing challenge and, and, and something we pay close attention to. But it's definitely remarkable the depth into which some respondents go, specifically also when we have more open-ended questions where they're asked to write freely on a topic. In those questions, you know, many people express very interesting and quite lengthy views where we learn, you know, we learn a lot from those. Stephanie Stancheva, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all the time we have for today's show. We are going to post links to the work of the Social Economics Lab and to Stephanie's other work in the show notes for this episode. And once again, this was the finale for season one. But stay with us. Stay subscribed in your podcast apps because we do plan to be back later in the fall. And even before that, in September and October, we are going to run some bonus episodes with some really great guests that we just were not able to schedule in time before the end of season one. Those episodes will just one day spontaneously, magically emerge in your podcast app when you least expect it. And you don't want to miss out. So yeah, stay subscribed. And if you want to keep up with new announcements about the new bazaar and also keep up with the other projects that Amy and I are working on, we are going to be posting periodic updates to our blog, which is at bazaaraudio.com slash blog. That's B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O dot com slash blog. And in fact, if you go there now, you'll find a new post with links to some of my favorite economics and business podcasts, just in case you want some recommendations or something to keep you company until the new bazaar returns. That's right. We're linking to our competitors slash our friends slash our colleagues and so on. And we're happy to do so. Also, we get a lot of questions about how people can support the podcast and how to increase the chances that we can do a full second season and keep things going. So there's a few things you can do and which we'd actually really appreciate if you did do. 
The best thing is simply to tell other people about the show and ask them to subscribe and try it out. The show now has an archive of 50 interviews, 50 episodes. So point your friends and family to your personal favorite and see how they like it. And please also leave those reviews and ratings in Apple or in the other podcast apps. That really helps get the message out about the show. And as we said in our recent listener Q&A episode, we are going to be exploring some possible business models for the show in the coming months, and we'll let you know what we come up with. And with that, one last time as we wrap up the season, The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio for me and my business partner, executive producer, and my dear friend, Amy Keene. Big, big ups also to Adrian Lilly, our sound engineer throughout this entire season. Everything you hear on this show comes through so much crisper, smoother, mellifluous, sir, if that's a word, than it otherwise would because Adrian can perform such wizardry with the files that we send her each week. Thanks, Adrian. And another massive thanks to Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio for creating not just those beautiful opening and closing tunes, but really for creating the sonic vibes of the whole show, which is a tragically underappreciated part of making a podcast, but not underappreciated by us. Scott, DJ Harrison, you should know that Amy and I deeply appreciate you. And we appreciate so much our listeners. Thanks for being with us throughout the first season. Thanks also to those of you who got in touch. Even though we couldn't respond to all the messages, we did read them all. We loved getting them, and we hope to hear from many more of you in the future. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And check out our other work as we post it at bizarreaudio.com. Jack Black once said in the School of Rock, I will see you cats on the flip-flop. Bye now.